Genome editing is a specific form of gene therapy, and the engineering of cells through genome editing has the potential to create a new class of medicines for the treatment of both genetic and non-genetic diseases. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Matthew Porteous, Professor of Pediatrics at Stanford University. Dr. Porteous has written a Frontiers in Medicine article on genome editing. Dr. Porteous, exactly what is genome editing? Genome editing is a way to change the sequence of a cell with single base pair precision. So we know that the DNA of a cell has approximately 6 billion different letters, or what we call nucleotides or base pairs, and this series of letters codes for how a cell behaves. And now with genome editing, we have the ability to change the letters, the sequence of the DNA of a cell, with the precision that our word processors allow us to change a document on our computer. So what are the different ways in which we can edit genomes today? That is one of the exciting things about genome editing is the tools now allow us to change the sequence of the DNA of a cell in many different ways. We can change a single letter from one letter to a different letter, for example, to correct a mutation that might cause a disease. We can insert whole new genes into a precise location in the genome, thereby avoiding the risk of the gene inserting in the wrong place. We can delete specific elements of the genome that might be causing harm, or we can mutate or inactivate certain genetic elements that might be causing harm. So this is the range of applications we can do with genome editing. And the challenge then is to decide whether we apply this tool to cells outside the body and then give them back to a patient, what we call ex vivo genome editing, or do we need to apply the genome editing process to cells inside the body because we don't know how to remove them and give them back, or what we call in vivo genome editing. How does CRISPR fit into all of this? CRISPR, or sometimes called Cas9 guide RNA, is a powerful new tool that allows us to activate the genome editing process. So genome editing is most efficient when you create a break in the DNA at the site you want to change. And for about 15 years, we were using tools such as zinc finger nucleases and tal effector nucleases and homing endonucleases to create that very specific break in the DNA. What has really changed the entire field over the last five years is the discovery of the CRISPR tool, not because it does anything different than the other tools, but simply because it is so easy to use. It is easy to design a CRISPR nuclease to recognize the specific site that you want to initiate the genome editing process, and it is very easy to make that tool. And generally, once you make the tool, it is usually very active. So it has taken a very complicated process and simplified it and allowed it now to be used by many, many more researchers all around the world. You talk in your article about editing DNA using non-homologous end joining and using homologous recombination. Can you tell us about those and what the differences are? Sure. So the start of the genome editing process involves delivering a nuclease, a protein that breaks DNA into two, into a cell. Once the DNA of a cell is broken, that broken DNA activates the cell to repair the break, to put the two ends of DNA back together. And the cell, because it's so important for the cell to put the two ends back together, 
the cell actually has many different ways of repairing that break. But the two general ways of repairing the break are either by what we call non-homologous end joining, which essentially takes the two broken ends and stitches them back together. Usually that's a very accurate process, but occasionally when you stitch the two ends back together, you get some losses or gains of letters at the site of the break, and that creates what we call an indel mutation. The other way that cells primarily repair breaks is through a process called homologous recombination, or sometimes also called homology-directed repair. And in this process, the cell doesn't simply stitch the two ends back together, but uses, again, or since we're making an analogy to editing a Word document, is a process of copy and paste. So it finds a piece of DNA that is essentially identical to the broken piece of DNA, makes a copy of that undamaged DNA, and then pastes it into the site of the break. Both non-homologous end joining and homologous recombination are ways that cells naturally repair double-stranded breaks and are actually ways that cells do their own genome editing. For example, when our immune systems develop, we create diversity in our immunoglobulins and T-cell receptors. Well, the way the cell creates diversity in the immune system is by using genome editing using non-homologous end joining. On the other hand, we know that during meiosis, we create diversity in the eggs and sperm through a process called meiotic recombination. And meiotic recombination uses the homologous recombination strategy of creating diversity. So non-homologous end joining and homologous recombination are endogenous, that is, natural cellular mechanisms that are activated by the cell to repair double-stranded breaks and in the process allow us to create specific changes in the DNA of a cell at the site of those breaks. So what are some of the major barriers to using genome editing? On paper, genome editing is a very powerful tool. But when you take an idea from on paper or a concept that works well in a laboratory setting, one then has to go through the process of translation to bring that tool to patients. So for example, in ex vivo genome editing, where we modify cells outside the body, we've had to learn how to apply those tools in a safe and effective manner to cells that we would give back to patients. So these aren't cells that researchers use in the lab all the time that are basically transformed cancer cells, but instead are cells like hematopoietic stem cells or T cells that are healthy and are safe to give back to patients. So there's been a period of time to discover how to use these powerful genome editing tools in the appropriate cell type. It then takes time to establish that the process is safe and effective at a clinical scale and show to the FDA in the United States and the EMA in Europe that the process is safe and effective and it is justified to start a clinical trial. That just takes some time. In addition, when you think about using genome editing to modify cells in the body, what I described as in vivo editing, 
one also has to now figure out how to deliver the genome editing machinery to cells in the body in a way that is safe and effective. And in particular, we have to figure out ways of delivering the editing machinery to cells without activating the human immune system. The human immune system is a powerful system that is designed to recognize foreign proteins, and the genome editing machinery is a foreign protein. So we have to figure out how to deliver this powerful machinery to cells in the human body without creating a bad immune response to that process. There was a great deal of attention to genome editing at the end of 2018 in both the scientific and the lay press. A Chinese scientist presented work that suggested that he had edited the genome of twin embryos. That work hasn't been published or verified, but from what we know of it, can you talk about what that case highlights about genome editing, about safety, and about where we should be going? Yes, at the end of 2018, there were very troubling reports out of China that a investigator there had used the CRISPR genome editing system to modify the DNA of embryos and create twin baby girls from that process. The Chinese authorities have recently reported that they believe what he claimed to have done is true, but the information has not been evaluated outside of China yet, so we don't know the full details of what happened. In fact, many, many of the important details remain obscure to many of us. Nonetheless, if we take what is claimed to have occurred is actually true, what does that mean? Well, it was a gross and irresponsible violation of a broad range of scientific principles and ethics. First, what he claimed to have done did not treat a serious medical condition. In fact, what he did was he took normal embryos and he added them to a DNA sequence that was not normal and has never been shown to be safe. This goes in direct violation of what many people said we should do, which is that we should take abnormal sequences and convert them to healthy normal sequences. But even more importantly than the lack of medical justification is that he did this in secret. He did not talk publicly about his intention. He did not get feedback in a public way from a broad range of people from around the world because fundamentally, by editing the embryos and creating new sequences in the human race, he has crossed a boundary that he himself made the decision about that will affect the rest of humanity. And it is simply inappropriate for any single person to unilaterally make that decision without a broad public discussion and consensus about whether that is worth doing or not. Finally, you've talked about the successes of genome editing, and you've just talked about the potential overreaching in gene editing work. What do you see as the future of genome editing? What's going to happen next? Well, my crystal ball is probably no better than anyone else's, but I will try to answer that to the best of my ability. I think that genome editing of somatic cells, so cells that will not give rise to people in the future, is a powerful new medicine that over the next decade is going to lead to new treatments for patients who have serious diseases that currently have no other treatments. 
the mechanism by which genome editing works allows us to attempt to treat diseases that other modalities, such as small molecule drugs or antibody biologics or even other standard gene therapies, can't treat. So it's going to open up a whole new realm of medicines. But this is a new therapy, and it will take years to decades for us to bring these therapies in a safe and effective manner to patients. So as scientists and doctors and as patient advocates, we both need to be inpatient because we want to cure our patients, but we need to be patient to allow this technology to be developed in a safe manner. Now, in terms of how it might be applied to human embryos, a number of different organizations have proposed a set of very strict criteria about how it might be applied to human embryos for the generation of children. Currently, those criteria would reflect a functional moratorium. It is currently not possible to satisfy the criteria laid out. Importantly, the WHO just this week announced a committee to evaluate if there can be a path forward that can be agreed upon internationally about how this might come to fruition in the future. But I think at best that the use of genome editing in human embryos would only be indicated for a very small number of couples and is likely only to become something that will enter our medical armamentarium in a decade or so. Thank you, Dr. Porteous.